Hi, and welcome to the LEAP podcast. LEAP stands for Leadership Education for Asian Pacifics. I'm Linda Akutagawa, your co-host. And I'm Yana, your co-host for the LEAP podcast. Welcome to season three. Our theme this season is centered on identity within a leadership context and how we as Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders navigate the complexities of our worlds as leaders through the lens of identity. Our hope for all of you who are listening to us is that these conversations spark new ideas and you're able to apply them in your own life. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our next episode of our LEAP podcast. Our guest today is Carla Thomas. She's the oldest daughter to her Samoan mother and Aymara father, both who came to the U.S. as immigrants, her mother from Batia, Tutuila, Samoa, and her father from Kime, Bolivia. She was raised on Serrano and Tongva land in the city of San Bernardino, California. Carla serves as the Deputy Director of Empowering Pacific Islander Communities, or EPIC, as it's known, and has a public health background holding a master's in public health with a focus on health policy. Also, Carla is a graduate of our LEAP Impact Program, so we're pleased to welcome her. And thanks for being on our podcast with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Carla, we're so excited to have you for many different reasons, but two of the most important reasons is because of your unique background and perspective about identity. So we have lots of questions around cultural identity, your bicultural identity, multiculturalism. There's so much to ask you. So we're super excited to have you. So why don't we jump right in? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. All right. Great. How about we start with a little bit about your life journey as a person of Samoan and Aymara descent? Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah. So as shared in my bio, I am Samoan on my maternal side and Aymara or Bolivian on my dad's side. My parents are immigrated here to the U.S. My mom, when she was in her early 20s, and my dad when he was a teenager. So they settled in California and also met in uh, Orange County. And then I was born there in Santa Ana and then raised in my hometown here in the city of San Bernardino, which is also where I'm calling in from. I grew up mostly around my maternal side. So I grew up in a Samoan church that spoke and did services in Samoan. So I was heavily influenced by that side of my culture and my identity. I grew up a lot around my Samoan family. A lot of my dad's side is back home in South America, but I did know a lot about the cultures through my dad, especially through food. He Mm. would cook a lot of like great Bolivian food that today I still try to replicate. I had one, just a few relatives, one uncle and one cousin out here that I stayed in touch with on my dad's side. But my mom's side, huge family. You know, she is uh, one of seven. So I have tons of cousins and we stay in touch with like all of our extended families. Um, So yeah, it's very nice. It's not lonely at all to grow up (laughs) Samoan. Yeah. Wow. Well, because Linda and I are, you know, love food. (laughs) Who doesn't, right? Can you explain a little bit about, you know, the, the food aspect of your culture and upbringing? Like what does your family typically make for dinner or family gatherings and whatnot? 
my Samoan church, you know, everyone pitches in to do lunch or we say to'onai every Saturday. Some of the foods that, you know, we would all prepare, got to have taro, got to have plantains. We typically either boil those with coconut milk and onions, which we call falifu style, or you can bake Mm. it. And so those are some of the staples. And then outside of that, there's a lot of influence from, you know, obviously colonization in the islands. So there were a lot of imported foods that are really a traditional part of Samoan cuisine now, which includes canned foods and like bisupo or corned beef, canned yeah. fish, canned tuna, things like that. And then on my dad's side, I want to say my dad cooked a lot more growing up than my mom did. I think that the foods that come from Bolivia are maybe a lot easier to make. Like Samoan mm-hmm. foods is traditionally made in the earth oven or there's fish, wow. a lot of slow cooking. But with my dad's food that he would make, like that I remember growing up is a lot of rice, potatoes, mm-hmm. always some type of vegetable salad and some type of meat and an egg or something. Some of my favorite meals that my dad would make is like silpancho. So it's like mm-hmm. fried carne asada, rice, fried potatoes, and he would always make some type of salad. And then they always have something spicy. They call it yahua. And it's like a green salsa from, it's a certain pepper, nice and spicy. And yeah, my dad made his own version of it with the ingredients he could find here in America. He always would have like serrano chilies around the house and he always made us eat spicy foods. I like spicy foods a lot today. Linda, I hope you ate lunch because (laughs) this whole conversation is making me hungry. I, it certainly is. And I, I love the descriptions of the food. I was, And I'm glad that you described it. I was really kind of curious. I mean, obviously, Bolivia and, you know, people and culture probably have their own unique foods. And it was it's yeah. really interesting to hear about all that. And I love hearing how he trained you early to eat spicy food, too. So, yes. Oh, my gosh. He'd be like, it's not spicy at all. <laughs> my siblings are over there in tears. Like, no, please. <laughs> <That's enough. laughs> how did yeah. that with Samoan food it, because mm-hmm. if it's slow cooked was there a lot of spicy food in you know Samoan food that you all ate no not at all <laughs> um, no I want to say my dad's side had more spices in the foods Samoan food is like coconut milk onions salt pepper and sometimes curry we do have curry we like lamb curry chicken curry yeah, they're mostly not really spicy foods. And my mom does not, like most of my family does not like spicy food on that side. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking about trying to go between spicy food and then not spicy food and, you know, just trying to just kind of juggle that. That must have been interesting in terms of trying to go from one to the other. Yeah, no, they're they're both really amazing cultures, really mm-hmm. rich foods. So recommend yeah. trying it if you can. There's a lot of Samoan yeah. uh, food spots to eat here in California. Not too many Bolivian food spots, but I know there might be, there's one that I go to in Santa Ana. And then there's a lot of Bolivian community on the East Coast, like Virginia, New York. You'll find a lot of restaurants there. Oh, that's oh, good to know. Yeah. yeah, we might have great to know. recommendations from you. Too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's always good to know. Yeah. We do have a follow-up question that we want to ask about, you know, just, you know, your upbringing and your story. How did your parents meet? As you talk about your parents, how did they end up meeting each other, getting to know each other? And then, I mean, obviously they eventually got married and had kids and blended family together, right? Between all of you. Yeah. So my parents met here in California in the city of Santa Ana. At the time, they were both working as caregivers or CNAs at a nursing home. 
And my mom was working with her sister and her sister-in-law. They were all in the same place. And my dad was there too. And it was just a coincidence, I think, that my dad was there because I know my dad, <laughs> one thing about him, he'll like go to different jobs because he's very independent. He likes to be the boss. And that showed later on how we were raised. But yeah, they met as CNAs in a nursing home. And my mom and my dad, you know, have different native languages, obviously. My dad speaking and growing up with learning Spanish and my dad, I mean, and my mom speaking Samoan. So there was definitely a language barrier, but there is nothing like the universal language of love that'll bring two people together. And so, you know, they settled in Santa Ana for a little bit. I know that when my dad wanted to propose to my mom. My mom really told him what the cultural and appropriate way to propose to a Samoan woman was. And so my dad came to my mom's family. At the time, it was just my grandma and my uncles and aunts all at the same house because, you know, times were hard, especially immigrating to the U.S. for the first time. My grandpa is deceased, so wasn't there. But my dad had to bring lots of gifts and especially food. So he bought, from what I heard, was like cases of canned corned beef, lots of fish, taro, things like that. Those are the kind of like goods you present to the family to just, you know, as a sign of respect, of love, and, you know, wanting to be a part of the family. And so ultimately, you know, they saw my dad was a, a good guy, decent enough for my mom. <laughs> and they got hitched and eventually moved to San Bernardino. You mentioned speaking, your dad speaking Spanish. Did he also speak Aymana too? Growing up, my dad, from what I knew, my dad only spoke Spanish. But his mom, my grandma, speaks Spanish, Aymara, and Quechua. And so she would use almost all of those languages to communicate with her kids. And my dad said that growing up, he did understand uh, like Aymara and Spanish, but sometimes it was confusing to understand his mom, he said, because she would, yeah, mix in languages and stuff. So, yeah. Did it make it challenging for your parents raising, you know, you and your siblings? You know, your mom probably spoke Samoan and your dad speaking Spanish and raising all of you in, in the U.S. where English is the primary language here. Did you grow up speaking either language, you know, just kind of toggling between both? Growing up in a Samoan church, I was exposed to that language a lot more than I was, I want to say, to Spanish. And so I was able to learn that language because, you know, we had Sabbath school and they would teach us, you know, the Samoan alphabet. We would have to read the Bible in Samoan. And so that's how I picked up. And then, of course, a lot of my mom's side of the family, their primary language is Samoan. My grandma doesn't speak a lick of English and my mom takes care of her and so have to communicate with her speaking Samoan for my my dad, he always talked to us, like me and my siblings, in English. I'm not sure why he didn't, you know, want to talk to us in Spanish. I don't know. I have no idea. I still have yet to have more conversations with my dad about that. <laughs> but I do know that when we finally went to go visit my dad's side of the family in Bolivia, my grandma was, man, she scolded my dad. She was like, why didn't you teach your kids how to speak Castellano or Spanish, she said, so that, you know, we could communicate with my dad's family because uh, they also only speak Spanish over there. Yeah, I was mostly exposed to English and Samoan, but my dad, anytime he had friends over or even the music he listened to was all Spanish. That's pretty interesting. Maybe that's a conversation for you to have with your dad at some point. Too. He clearly made a conscious decision to use just English. Did you ever regret that you didn't learn Spanish as well? I did, 
because, you know, Spanish is another dominant language here in the U.S. and especially in California. In my neighborhood, too, just growing up in the city of San Bernardino, the Latinx community is huge. I think it's important. I've also picked up some Spanish, like I've had to force myself to learn it because I want to communicate with my family on my dad's side. Um, so I have learned some. Anytime I also go to a restaurant that has like Spanish-speaking staff. I always try to use that language just to practice. Yeah, I regret not learning it directly from a parent whose, you know, native tongue was Spanish, but, you know, I've had to learn on my own time. And sometimes my dad tries to speak with it to me too, but I think it's a little weird because we just always spoke in English growing up with him. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. I was curious about, but you made this comment earlier, Carla, about how big your family is. When you have family reunions, like how big is that party? <laughs> wow. So the last time there was a family reunion was in Samoa, probably in like the early 2010s. And all of my family has like comes from a lot of siblings. Like my grandma's one of 10. Um, and so there was a family reunion for her and her siblings. And so there can mm. be like, and I want to say maybe like four to six hundred people there. Oh my, and oh my gosh. Even, yeah. And that's not even everyone that could be there. Like there were still some people that couldn't go. Like myself, I wasn't even able to go. But I, you know, we looked on everyone's pictures online and things like that. But yeah, that's something so common on the Psalm 1 side is that we really keep track of our genealogies and our family trees. Yeah, we have them written down or you'll just know. Something I love about my culture too is I can be anywhere in the world and somehow, somewhere I'll, I'll find like someone I'm related to. Like I remember once somewhere in the US and I ran into like my grandma's brother. It was so funny, but... <laughs> Yeah. So I know like all my grandma's siblings, all of their grandkids and great grandkids, like we know each other. And even if yeah. it's considered long distance, you know, family is family to us. You know, you might be my grandma's cousin's nephew, but you're my cousin. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Like two questions. One, what's the what do you use to keep track? And then the second question is, who's the like the official record holder of that information? Yeah. For our family, I remember my uncle, my grandma's brother, her older brother used to have like a book that, that kept, you know, the names of all of our families in there. But also we're really great at just passing down the, this knowledge orally. So, you know, my grandma told my mom and I learned from both of them and my aunties, they share all of this. The names in our families also stay alive through generations. So we'll rename, you know, uh, our kids and grandkids, nieces and nephews after our ancestors. Um, so that's really common too. And then you ask, you know, where's my name from? And it, oh, that's my, that's, you know, that was uh, your great auntie or something like that. So, yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Is there anything on your mom's side from, you know, the Aymara people as far as like keeping track of culture and people and relatives and whatnot? On my dad's side for keeping track or of family? Dad's side, yeah. I'm not too sure, honestly. I don't want to say no. Yeah. I just want, yeah. you know, I don't think I know too much. But when I went to go visit, like meeting extended family, it wasn't like, it, like you weren't as close to your extended family. So I met my grandma over there, but like her siblings, they're just, you know, extended relatives that we don't really, we didn't really keep too uh, in touch with. But, you know, if I went to Samoa, if we went to my mom's village, you know, we would meet everyone. Yeah. It was a little bit different, but... I think on yeah. both sides, you know, come from big families. My dad's also like one of uh, six. That yeah. is a big family. Does your dad keep in touch with all of his other siblings? Are they in the U.S. or are they mostly in Bolivia? Uh, they're all in Bolivia. 
Yes. And he does keep in touch uh, as much as he can. Um, I know that growing up, I remember my mom and dad always used to buy calling cards. And now I'm like, calling cards don't exist anymore. (laughs) Uh, but they would use that. And now, you know, it's now it's much easier to communicate over the internet or like an app. Mm-hmm. Or so I think it's gotten better. I'm just curious what you said about how the names are passed down orally and your, you know, your grandmother passed it on to your mom, your mom passed it on to you. How does it get explained? And I'm just curious, do you also have a Samoan name as well, too? I do. Yeah. So my Samoan name is Savali Olefile Mu. It's a mouthful, but Savali means, uh, Savali Ophilemu means like peace messenger, walking with peace or something like that. I don't, I can't directly translate it, but that's the essence of of what that um, name means. And that name my mom gave to me from one of her aunties who passed away when she was in her teens. But my mom lived with her when she was finishing up high school in Samoa. So she was kind of raised by her too. And she really loved that auntie of hers. She loved the her just her character. And you know, when you want to pay your pay homage or pay respect to to those, you know, the, that family, then you you pass that down. And so that's where my name came from. Yeah. Your Samoan name has that influenced the work that you do now, or how you think about your work? I do use my name. I don't use it too often. I think my I, I just use my one middle name, which is Blessing. But if I do have the chance to use my full name, then I do. I guess in home settings, you know, I'm either Carla or my grandma calls me Savali or some other uh, yeah. Samoan name too. Yeah, my question was actually, and I didn't say it correctly. It's more like, did, you know, it's like something about the way you were named. And was it like uh, kind of a foreshadowing of what you might do in the future? You know, they were hoping that you would think about peace, think about something, you know, and the work that you do now with, right? It's like, I was wondering if there was that, like a fortune telling sort of, right? Of what you might do in the future in terms of work. I mean, (laughs) yeah, I'd hope that I'd embody the the meaning of that name. Yeah. Yeah. Did your father also give you an Aymada name as well too? No, no. Yeah, he didn't. I wish. I wish I had more. Because when you hear my name, you hear Carla Thomas, you don't really, it doesn't give you a snapshot of what cultures that name might come from. It just sounds American. (laughs) I don't know, maybe that was intentional for my parents to kind of help us assimilate. I, I don't really know. Yeah, I've always wondered that though. But I do know at this point in my life, now being 26, I'm like, I just, that's, that's who I am. I don't know if I could ever change my name now (laughs) gone too far with it (laughs) right for me it's always been interesting because you know the conversations that we've had about you know your name language food you know they're so tied to not only culture but our identities as well too and so that's why I was just thinking you know just one I think learning this you know these these things about you is really interesting and always so fascinating to hear the stories. And it's always interesting to to hear the kind of choices that your parents and family have made about, Mm -hmm. you know, your name, right? I mean, it wasn't, I mean, you know, you could choose to say, I'm going to adopt a new name, but they made some very intentional choices about how Mm -hmm. they named you. Even the language that they choose to use at home and Mm -hmm. raise you with is so interesting about 
maybe the hopes and dreams and the choices that they made for for yeah. you and your siblings as well too, especially perhaps not thinking about later on how you might feel in connection to your own identity because either because of the name you have or the name you don't have or the language you have or the language you don't have. So it's just always interesting mm-hmm. to really explore these. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Leap Podcast. Don't miss a special live episode with author Min Jin Lee on Thursday, July 20th, 2023 at our annual Leap Celebration sponsored by Target. This year's celebration theme is Finding Our Way. Please support Leap and buy a celebration ticket today at leap.org forward slash celebration. So Carla, I want to ask you a question, maybe staying a little bit around identification. And we've mm-hmm. talked about your, you know, your mom's side, you know, your Samoan side. I want to ask you, I'm going to say this is more from a, a place of curiosity that I have. You identify that your father's identity is Aymada and he grew up in Bolivia which is South America, which is, you know, due to colonization, very much a, I guess, a a Spanish or a Latin culture. Yet your father and his family is from an indigenous culture. I'm just curious, have you seen or have you felt, is there more of a connection to a, you know, a Latino culture or identity or in terms of what you know about, you know, your dad and how he's raised you, how his family also, you know, thinks of themselves. Do they see themselves connected to a Latino identity or is it more very much still rooted in their indigenous culture and identity? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for asking that. You know, that's it's a complex relationship that... Uh, that between um, all of these countries, right? And, you know, the Aymara people, they predated the borders that exist today. You know, Aymara spans across Peru, Bolivia, Chile, before any of those terms even existed. But because of that Spanish influence, you know, a lot of people do speak Spanish or Castellano. I think for me growing up, because there is a large Latino Latinx community out here in Southern California, but I didn't really see too many South Americans or indigenous South Americans around me. So I think maybe the largest group of Latino folks out here in, in, in my local community is like Mexican or there's a lot of Central Americans too. And for me, I, I don't think I had a big affinity towards that larger community. My dad also, I remember him you know, expressing to us a lot of pride in his identity as an indigenous South American. He would always make that clear. I remember one time he said he wanted to get that tatted on him. (laughs) That said, uh, yeah, just to show that pride, you know, my dad is very uh, about where he comes from. And so I think that there are definitely Bolivians that identified as, you know, as Latino, Latina, Latinx, whatever the term you want to use is. And I did feel that way at some point in my life too. I was like, you know, maybe I think that's also what I am. But as I just grew up and got older and was able to just have more dialogue with my dad about culture and identity is when I started mm-hmm. to learn about, you know, where where our roots really are and what the influence was on our cultures. And that's why, you know, Spanish exists there. That's why the Catholic Church is so heavy in Bolivia. You know, we had a culture that existed before that that is really strong today. Like Bolivia is over 90% indigenous uh, peoples. Mm -hmm. And they recently, you know, the 
not the current president, but the last one was one of the first indigenous presidents in the world. So, you know, there's a lot to say about how strong the indigenous culture is in Bolivia. Wow. And so, yes, and it's it's also very complex. Wow. And I mean, as you were talking about this, I'm sure to make it even more complicated, curious about, I mean, you grew up here in the U.S., like it or not, I mean, you know, it is kind of part of anybody who grew up here for the most part. I mean, you know, there's this, you know, American culture. And how did that intersect with your Samoan and Aymada culture and identity growing up here? And, and I ask that because I feel like we're all asked to make a choice sometimes, right? We're either one or the other. And there's this kind of, you know, idea of being fluid through all these identities seems almost hard for people to accept that others would, you know, want this for themselves. Yeah. I think growing up in a mixed household, I saw just the clashes in the different cultures happen a lot of times because, you know, Samoans, that community has, uh, we have our own set of beliefs and customs on that side. Same thing for my dad's Mm -hmm. side. And then there's also, you know, the the setting we live in, living in America. what, What does that mean too? And what kind of influences there are on me and my siblings as we grow up. There was definitely a lot of arguments over it, you know, trying to, because, you know, you come from different ways of knowing things, you know, what you think yeah. is right is rooted in, a, in in your cultural knowledge. And so we definitely had interesting family discussions growing up. But I think maybe when things started uh, to show up for me as I got older was like when I graduated from high school and I was applying for college and it was time for me to make that big decision of like just leaving the home. And that is so not traditional for either of my parents' cultures for me to be 18 years old and leaving the nest. You know, on my mom's side, it's you stay home and you live with your parents until you're married and you start a new family. And it's kind of similar to my dad's side too. You know, you don't leave for, especially as as a girl. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so I remember really having to fight to go to school in LA, even if it wasn't even that far from San Bernardino, it's only an hour mm-hmm. and, some, and some away from home. But to my parents, it was a really big change for our family. Something that's, you know, so influenced by like what is expected of an American young adult to go to college. So they, I think it didn't really hit them that that would be my future until I finally, you know, spoke to them and was like, I got into this school and this is where I want to go. And they were, I think they finally just accepted it. Like, you know, she did grow up here in the U S and that's, you know, part of the, the life paths that she wants to take. And in reality, it's, it's not abnormal. (laughs) over here. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. How many conversations did you have to have for them to make that kind of switch in mindset? I want to say at least like two or three hard conversations with my dad specifically. For my mom, she always supported my education and my dad did too. But for him, it it was a lot harder for him to accept. And that was like... Yeah, I was like literally crying, <laughs> trying to sure. fight for me yeah. to go to college because I really wanted to go to UCLA. And so he was like, you can go here to your local community college, which is there's nothing wrong with that. But I just this is the opportunity and it's my life. You know, I, that's the path that yeah. I wanted to take. And so, yeah, yeah, I think it paid off because, you know, I am where I am today. 
<laughs> Do you think there's a gender aspect to it? I mean, you're his daughter, right? I, <laughs> I mean, because you speak about how hard it was for your for your dad. I mean, I'm just thinking about you know, yeah. fathers and daughters. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. It had so much to do with me being a girl and now being a woman. I think there are certain gender roles in both of my parents' cultures that influence the way they mm-hmm. think about how they need to raise, you know, their daughter. On my mom's side, there's it's very strict <laughs> in your daily life and what your role should be in the house. Also, the relationship you have with your brothers in the family, not just like your in your immediate family, your brothers, but you know, your cousins, your boy cousins are your brothers too. They right. there's a certain degree of respect between brothers and sisters in the Samoan culture. Mm-hmm. And that's also pretty common among other Polynesian cultures too. Like I know the Tongan community has that really strong custom as well. And then in my dad's side, because there is a huge Spanish influence there, the term I hear a lot in is like machismo. And I definitely think that, that has, that's seen in my dad's culture too, because of that yeah. Spanish influence. I don't know if that existed in you know indigenous cultures, because in my And just in my observations of how I see my dad's family, like the women in his family are very strong minded, like they lead the family, they help make decisions. They don't, you know, my dad can't even um, convince his mom to do something. She'll put her foot down and that's what it is. But I think my dad had, you know, taken in a different influence too, because he grew up mostly maybe around a Spanish culture. So yes, there's so much, you know, another layer of gender on top of dealing with so many cultures in, in my household. Well, these two distinct cultures that you've shared with us about, Carla, Mm -hmm. do you feel any sense of responsibility to uphold aspects of each culture, just given, you know, the history of colonization and how these histories and people's experiences are often buried? I mean, that happens, right? It's like people's experiences, especially those from indigenous communities, they get buried. So do you feel a responsibility to share and and sort of like uncover those experiences for the broader population. I do feel to some degree some responsibility and I also think just my existence is also just living proof of where our communities are today. I think that one being Samoan, being Pacific Islander, there are huge stereotypes that work against our people Mm -hmm. that portray us as entertainers, that Mm -hmm. sexualize our cultures, fetishize Mm -hmm. our cultures and our dances. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that those are all really, it's a really negative narrative to live your life throughout as, you know, especially out here in San Bernardino, there's a growing population, but there's not too many of us. And people would make really bad assumptions about our families that about being uneducated or being unhealthy, being big. Mm -hmm. No, those are the kind of stereotypes you hear. So I think that's what I really like about the work that I do at Epic is all about, you know, changing those narratives and making sure that our people also have the tools to advocate for themselves in any setting that they're in. The other side of the coin, my Aymara Mm -hmm. side, and I do try to grow my knowledge on my culture there too. I've only been exposed so much to my dad through his lens of the culture and the free thing there. But I know that that's just one person's, you know, view of the community, of the culture, of of everything. And so, yeah, I do feel responsibility, but I don't want to carry that all on my own either because I know that there's so many, there's so much to learn about it, you know, and I can't, I would be doing injustice to, to both of my communities if I, you know, tried to 
be the one person to educate everyone about, well, this is right. the right, you know, view of these cultures, but you know, yeah. everyone's view is, mm-hmm. is different. Yeah. And I think that's why, I mean, we're glad that, you know, we could have you in conversation, mm-hmm. this discussion, because, you know, it's not to say that what you say, what your story is, is representative of every Samoan or Pacific Islander or every, you know, I'm a person or, you know, someone who's Bolivian, you know, it is your story. It is a story for people to consider in that it's not the stereotype like you said, Mm -hmm. that most people, you know, would imagine and have continued to, I think, advance as kind of the narrative of one or both communities. So yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just to to me, I think just being able to share these stories are just an important, you know, step in creating that narrative change about our very diverse communities here. So you kind of touched on it a little bit where you said, you like the work at Epic because you, you know you're changing narratives and the kind of work that you're doing to help the community. Has your connection to you know growing up in the Samoan Church, particularly having it sounds like a, a pretty close connection to your mom's side in terms of a more of a Samoan cultural identification. In one way, yes, it's impacted your career choice mm-hmm. because you're working at Epic. Can you speak to more about the kind of career choices that you've made that could be influenced by how you grew up, how you were raised? Because my parents, you know, obviously they wanted us to be grow up and be successful, but they also had narrow views of what being successful looked like here in the U.S. And I think that might be true for a lot of folks who didn't grow up in this system is you immediately think of being a doctor or a lawyer. And so those were that input I definitely internalized. And that's kind of the path I initially wanted to take going into college. But as I was exposed to more disciplines and also my own political consciousness grew when I started college is when I started to realize that, you know, I wanted to work in the line of racial justice and equity because of I just realized how crappy of an experience it was for my communities uh, that was not totally on them. And that's when I, that really influenced, I guess, my career trajectory after that and why I wanted to work in community mm-hmm. and specifically work to improve, you know, racial justice and racial equity. And then I think that also the women and the role that they have in both of my parents' cultures, both of them have, you know, influences from colonization. But I think the indigenous cultural custom is that the women in our both of my cultures, they run stuff. <laughs> they run it. And I am really proud to come from that. And I feel like I embody that too, because I'm confident in myself, in the decisions I make, in the spaces I enter, and not just because like just me and what I know, but because I have really great role models on both of uh, sides of my family. And those Mm. hugely impact, you know, where I am and the leadership position that I hold. Can we uh, dig a little bit more into that as far as your leadership style and how your upbringing um, influenced your leadership style? You know, what do you draw from to get that courage, get that, you know, set of inspiration? What do you draw from? Yeah, I think I draw so much from the 
aunties, grandmas on both of my sides of the family. And also, of course, my mom. Um, My mom is the glue to our family. And so naturally, I do want to be someone that brings harmony um, in settings that I've Mm. been in. That's been my role in in Mm. the last community work that I did as doing coalition building during COVID. I helped to bring people together. And so that's a quality that I took from my mom. But then also I think of like my auntie Elisa on my mom's side. And she is so great at being, she's a, she's an orator. And in the Samoan uh, culture, there's the Samoan language. And then there's also Another part of the language is that's specifically used for certain ceremonies that only like so few of the population know and understand. And it's really old language that's used. You can use it again at certain ceremonies, like maybe it's bestowing a chiefly title or matai or at um, a wedding when the speaker of, on mm. behalf of the family is, is talking. There's a certain language you use. It's not just like everyday Samoan language. And so my auntie Elisa, she's really knowledgeable about about that stuff. And so I definitely channel her when I have to do public speaking because she is so confident and she memorizes those words. And it's really impressive, especially her being a woman, because a lot of those roles of speaking, uh, what we call the laonga, are taken on by men in our culture. Mm. Um, but I, I know that, you know, she is, you know, miles ahead of of so many men in that knowledge that she carries. I even go to her when I need to speak someone at you know an event or just any other speaking engagement and I know that I want to you know do my absolute best I reach out to her mm-hmm. for for guidance because I know that she has so much wisdom in knowing that wow. that really deep and old someone culture that she keeps alive today and then on my dad's side who I've you know I didn't grow up too much around but was recently exposed to my grandma is what 97 years old but she oh is so sharp and she is so she is just so badass she owns her own little store and she will take so much she takes so much pride in it because her even though she's on a cane she has to open up a garage she has to do um like there's cases of of you know merchandise you have to bring in but she doesn't let anyone help her she's like i'm gonna do it myself even her own house that she has, my dad wanted to come in and make renovations and she said no. And even trying to buy her things. I remember my dad told me a funny story. He said he would send remittances and send money back home to his mom. And then the one time he went to go visit her, she gave him all the money back. And she said, here, I was saving it for you. And he was like, what do you mean? I gave this to you to help you. And she said, no, I, I don't know. This is yours. I don't need it. So she takes a lot of pride in taking care of herself. She won't let anyone buy her something. She's like, I have my own money. I'll take care of myself. And those are the kind of women that I'm so proud to, to come Incredible. from. Yeah, yeah. So I definitely think of them. In, and I think they have definitely influenced who I am not as a leader, just but just as a person unconsciously too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Wow. It's amazing. What is your grandmother sell? Just out of care. You know? uh, she just People has a might small wanna. convenience store. You know, she oh sells everyday things, That's sweaters, amazing. clothes, basic needs things, toiletries. That's what she has. Wow. Yeah. She runs it all by herself? Yeah, all by herself. Amazing. She opens and closes all by herself. And she, yeah, she has no problem 
She doesn't like asking for for help too often, but she just has <laughs> a lot of pride, you know? Yeah. Yeah. She is a badass. A 97-year-old badass. <laughs> she deserves that title. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Your relationship with her or getting to know her is a little bit like more recent. So if I can just ask you, growing up, it sounds like she's hugely influential now, but growing up, did you ever feel that... And this is going to be kind of a two-part question. Coming back to the identity question, right? Like, did you ever feel that you question your identity, especially those who of us who come from, especially immigrant families, I mean, and communities of color? I mean, you know, I'm sure there's always this kind of like, who am I and, you know, what's my identity and what's important and, you know, all those kind of you know, identity crisis kind of conversations that we probably hold in our heads with, the, you know, with ourselves. And it's bad enough, like when we're, questioning ourselves. But then when others also question us too, how did that impact you? I also want to ask you, how did that impact you in terms of how you might have been able to see yourself as a leader? Or did you even see that you could be a leader because of, you know, just kind of, I'm going to call it the kind of layers and years of probably us being questioned about, you know, who we are and what our worth is and, you know, all those kinds of things that come our way? I think that I definitely had identity struggles growing up as someone of mixed race, multi-race, or, you know, multicultural. It always felt like I wasn't enough to identify as one side of my community. I think what also played into it was just like how I physically look you wouldn't see me and immediately think, oh, she's Samoan or, oh, she's she's Bolivian. You know, I get, I guess I get mixed up a lot for being Southeast Asian. I love Southeast Asian cultures and foods, by the way. But yeah, I, w- I never came off as, you know, looking one as, as a, one of my communities. And so that was always hard. But I think I tried so hard to make up for it by like, for instance, learning Samoan. I was like, well, if I'm not going to look Samoan, I'm going to, you know, do my best to learn the language and learn the culture as much as I can. But I think that, yeah, it was definitely negative to hear people make assumptions about, you know, who I was, even though they really didn't, you know, know me. And same thing for my, my dad's side, right? I because I didn't speak Spanish. I wasn't even raised too much around my dad's family or like the community in general. All I knew was like the bubble that my dad created as, you know, he tried to expose us to his culture as much as he can, as he could. But, you know, I never, I didn't feel like I had too much connection if I, you know, was around that community. Because I don't know, it just, when you're half is what I hear people a lot say, you know, I'm half this, I'm half that, which I used to say a lot too, but I've strayed away from using that language because I don't consider myself half Samoan. And recently I heard from someone of a on a different podcast, I forgot the name what it was, but she called this population the 200 percenters. Like I'm 100% this and I'm 100% that. And I totally feel that way. I don't feel like I'm half of anything. Like I'm a full person of both of those identities. And yeah, I I could never choose to be one or the other. And I don't, and I try not to ever feel like I need to make up for something because I don't feel enough 
of being one community or the other. I just, I exist and I am. That's just it. That That's all it is. And that's all that's enough for me to, to be part of those communities. I was, you know, I was born into it. And I know you asked if it impacted me as seeing myself as a leader. I think it impacted me a little bit, especially being a emerging or up and coming leader in the Pacific Islander community. Just a little bit because but because I know that I grew up around as you know a strong Samoan community. So I always felt like I would have been familiar with our struggles as a Samoan person. And I, you know, definitely try to continue growing and learning about all the other Pacific Islander cultures as much as I can because of where I am at Epic. And, you know, we serve all of the, the, the entire NHPI community. But I think that me being an oldest daughter <laughs> to immigrants is another layer in itself, too, that mm-hmm. I think I've always kind of just taken on that role of being a leader in my family, helping my parents navigate the U.S. in education and health, and also just being there for my siblings as like a third parent. That's always been my role. And, you know, so I don't think it was too surprising to me to, you know, look for capacities that aligned with my experiences. That's great. It's interesting. And I love hearing that you're able to draw on your personal experiences as the oldest daughter, you know, as the oldest sister, right? And what that means in terms of your leadership. And do you find that you also bring that aspect of being the oldest sibling to your work in your leadership style as well too? I think that I do bring some qualities that I just, it just comes with the package. (laughs) But my role in my family has been trying to be a problem solver and bringing us all together and trying to find common ground because Mm. of the different sets of beliefs and customs and traditions on both of my mom's and dad's side. I've always had to try to find common ground. And so I think that's a type of leadership style that I bring into my work. I think you mentioned before that there's a, uh, is it your mom who's sort of been the glue to within the family? Is Mm -hmm. that Yeah. Do you think that's part of it too? Like you're the glue when it comes to the work that you do? That's what I strive to do, I, I hope. But yeah, that that's definitely the role my mom has played among our immediate little families, just three of, of us, my siblings and then my parents. But it's always her that's been, you know, the nurturing parents, the one who tries to bring harmony. And so, yeah, I do find myself doing that. I remember we took like a short assessment for our, when I started this job. And one mm-hmm. of the things that I like to do that I realized is just trying to want to invest in building good relationships among a team. Yeah, I want to make sure everyone feels included. I want to make sure everyone is having a good time, is having a good experience. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, Great. Well, I love this. And it speaks to how our culture and identities do influence how we lead. But at the same time, it also speaks to who you are individually as a person. Uh, you know, a whole person yeah. you are who you are, right? And mm-hmm. your your culture and your identity, you, you know, your gender and, and so many other mm-hmm. factors that make us who we are are just that. They're just individual factors, but not necessarily mm-hmm. the only thing that plays into 
who you are, but more importantly, how you lead. It's it's the combination of that plus so many other things. And yeah, I love hearing how you're aware of how those all come to play in terms of your leadership at Epic and in the community. And so mm-hmm. I just want to say thank you. I mean, it's been, yeah. uh, you know, thank you. This conversation with you. So excited. I mean, in terms of, I know you said that you identify as an emerging leader. I would just say you're a leader already. So mm-hmm. I think in all our communities, we're lucky to have, you know, someone like you advocating for, yeah. you know, all of our communities too. So. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed talking about, you know, my experience because I feel like it's so important just to share. I tend to, uh, I learn a lot when I when I talk to people and I realize that if you don't open up, then, you know, there could be someone out there that's looking for to inform them about their journey, heal their journey. And yeah, so thank you both so much for inviting me. Well, we're glad to have you with us. Thank you so much, and- Carla. And thank you for being so open. I know sometimes it's, should we ask this question? Is this going to be uncomfortable? You know, so we were, you, those were also concerns that we had, but we appreciate your openness. Yeah. And I thought it was, yeah, it was a really fabulous conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much. Anytime. And that's a wrap. Thank you for joining Jan and I for this season three episode of the Leap podcast. Stay connected with Leap by joining Leap's mailing list at leap.org. And follow us on Leap's social media on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you really enjoyed this podcast, please donate to Leap. Thank you all for tuning in today. We look forward to being with you next time.